Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. It's episode 54, Monday, June 5th. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Today, we got the killer bees. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Welcome. Thanks, Danny. Brian Jacobson, chief economist at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for having me again. I love that title, Killer Bees. I like that. Just coming at you. <laughs> so, as always, we just want to do our shout out for the listeners. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you're coming back week to week, feel free to share it with friends and family. Really enjoy going over what we see in the markets and what we've been talking about as a team. For this week, we got a handful of economic data points coming up. Some of them are somewhat large. Uh, we've kind of been coming through first half of the year, and now we're going into June and we're going to have some new numbers on ISM, uh, especially on the services side. So we got expectations are actually going to be an expansionary mode. Uh, is, is at least that's what we're seeing. 52 and a half is what's expected. It's a slight positive move from last month. Brian, I don't know if you watch that number or what you like about that number or what you're seeing there. but Yeah, so I always like looking at the headline number, but there's all sorts of wonderful sub-indexes as well. Like you can look at, oh, what's going on with actual production activity, new orders, prices, inventories, things like that. And when it comes to the services side, uh, I think that uh, an important thing to really look at right now is the prices subcomponent, which has been improving. So it's high, suggesting that there's that kind of of like cost pressure for businesses, but it's coming off the boil. Most recently, it was down to its historical average. So it's almost like a lot of that price pressure has come down. And then the second part that I like looking at right now is really the employment number. Because the employment index is going to try to answer the question, are you increasing employment or are you decreasing it relative to the previous month? And that's the one that ties nicely to future employment situation reports that we get. And that's super important right now because, I mean, when you look at the manufacturing side, it's obviously going through some contractionary periods. Mm -hmm. You'd almost say recessionary periods, right? And the services has really been like driving a lot of what we've seen in the economy so far over the last several months. And so I think a lot of focus gets and pressure gets put on these services numbers to make sure that they're coming through as expected mm-hmm. or even beating expectations to make sure that we're not potentially going into a contractionary. Yeah, I, I think that's moment. a good way to put it is that you almost have, if you think about it as like a, uh, a train who's the locomotive and it's services, right? And the caboose is manufacturing. It's really been lagging. And in fact, manufacturing has been lagging actually in contraction territory. I would say a recessionary environment for at least the last seven months. I think you could argue that all of 2022, it was dipping in and out of a recession and really towards the end of 2022, manufacturing entered a recession. We did get the ISM manufacturing number last week, and it was somewhat disappointing. And I actually think that it points to further future disappointment, unfortunately, because the production activity was positive. So manufacturers actually accelerated their activity, but new orders actually fell. Inventories also fell. And so it suggests that you have this dynamic where they picked up some activity now, but it might lay dormant for a little bit here. And I I mean, we'll get into some of our SWOT analysis, but it ties into some of this from the inflation mm-hmm. standpoint and talking about wage pressure and, and pressures that are showing up or potentially showing up. I mean, companies, I think, are drawing down their inventories because they don't want that stuff sitting on the shelves, given what the cost of capital is running at right now, given where interest rates are. So it's kind of, you're finally seeing 
the rate hikes really start to work inside the economy, yeah. which I, I think people, when they hear, oh, the Fed raised rates or they're going to raise rates, it's it's now. It's happening mm-hmm. today. It's going to impact the economy today. And it's no, it's it takes six to nine months for those hikes to really start working into the system. Yeah, sometimes in some sectors of the economy, it affects it sooner than others. Uh, the most interest rate sensitive ones would be like housing. You have yep. a more immediate effect there. And we've already seen weakness in uh, with housing. Then it's usually things that need to be financed like durable goods. So think about buying a car, things that you might want to put on your credit card, washer, dryer. Right. Those things tend to be more interest rate sensitive. But then other parts aren't quite as interest rate sensitive. It's more about these circuitous routes to affecting them where it might be non-durables, uh, where the, uh, non-durable is anything that's not expected to last three years. Right. So it, it, the classic example is food. <laughs> it has a limited shelf life. Right. Um, and then services. So kind of it goes through housing, durable goods, non-durable goods, and then services are the last one to fall. And that's where the interest rate hikes can have a long long-term effect on the economy. It doesn't happen right away. The markets, of course, try to price that all in right away because markets are forward-looking. But the actual real effects when you see them on the economy, it can take a while. Yeah, and I think that's where you get these disconnects that we've been having with the Fed saying, we're going to hold rates higher for longer, and the market trying to price in, no, you're going to be doing cuts in Mm -hmm. the fall. And now things over the last few weeks have started sorting themselves out a bit, I would say, like as far as where those futures are trading. But to your point, like this ebb and flow of market and the economy timing wise is what makes it a challenge and why we have jobs, you know, doing our (laughs) analysis on that. And I remember a month ago that we were talking about what is the market pricing in? Right. That's always a challenge is trying to figure out what is the consensus? What is the market really pricing in? Now, thankfully, there are some instruments that are traded that we can actually look at to get at least a gauge for what people are pricing in. And the Fed funds futures market is one of the areas where investors can place their bets as to what the Fed might do. And about a month ago, I think it was that the market was pricing in rate cuts beginning in like September. They were pricing in, oh, they're going to hike hold and then begin cutting basically in the you know towards the end of the third quarter beginning of the fourth quarter of this year and now the that expectation has really shifted we were pushing back on that idea thinking that no the fed is not going to be that quick to react right. to any signs of weaknesses and so as a result we were thinking oh that has to reprice and indeed thankfully we were right with that one yeah and i mean we're going to let's just dive into our strengths cuz this kind of gets at some of it is you had the market pricing in a potential for a hike in june and including july between those two meetings you essentially had a whole hike priced in mm-hmm. just as of last week then our labor data came out, which came out very strong, uh, you would say, especially given the fact that we had blowout numbers, but then there really wasn't massive wage pressure, mm-hmm. which is what is going to drive that Fed decision and the market trying to price that in is looking at, okay, we had blowout numbers. If there was a wage price spiral potentially happening, okay, wait, we for sure have a hike coming, right? And we didn't necessarily see that wage pressure. Like there was wage gains, but it wasn't a, 
oh my gosh, people are getting massive raises. We yeah. have to. And, and the monthly rate, so is 0.3%. And so just back of the envelope, you annualize that, that's like 3.6%. And uh, the Fed has done research in the past suggesting that anything with like a 3% handle on it is still consistent with their 2% inflation target over the long term. And so I think that was kind of the sigh of relief where you've got decent job gains, but the wage pressure isn't there where the Fed would be concerned about future inflationary pressure. So we're kind of at that level now where wage gains are at uh, a decent amount where in the long term, hopefully it beats inflation, but it's not going to feed into inflation. Yeah, so they're essentially starting to get the, I would say the results they want of a potential soft landing. It's a now a fine tuning is what mm-hmm. they're going to be trying to do is, okay, we're hitting this thing with a blunt instrument with rate hikes and tightening like we're doing. It's a matter of can we pull off or not hit the nail as hard to slow this economy down or, you know, get inflation essentially under control? Yeah, I like that analogy because they do refer to it sometimes as fine-tuning, but it's a blunt instrument. And how much fine-tuning can you really do with such a blunt instrument? I don't think you can do much, which is why there's collateral damage. You know, I'm not very handy, but uh, I do know that uh, with blunt tools, Mm -hmm. you can't do much fine-tuning. Yeah, trying to hit a finishing nail with a sledgehammer, it's uh, (laughs) it's a challenge. So looking at... That jobs number was very strong, but there's a caveat to it. And Brian, we've talked about this and it's that participation rate actually looks okay. And it's like improved, but you have parts of parts of the labor market that just haven't come back to the workforce. And we essentially are short employment if you look at it on a big picture. Yeah, it really is. So I've looked at, let's say, the trend in population and employment growth from 2015 through 2019. And uh, in fairness, we should actually probably have like 4 million more jobs than what we do. So even though we've seen these massive payroll gains, it's because the hole from COVID was so deep. The economy is really still kind of digging out of that hole. And the labor force participation rate, so that's just the percentage of the overall population that's of um, you know, kind of working age, 16 years old and older, um, what percentage of them are either employed or looking for work. And you can break it down by demographics. Uh, you can dr- break it down by whether it's age, gender, educational attainment, and probably about Two million of that shortfall that we have right now is because people who were close to retirement decided to take early retirement with COVID. You had a decent increase in property values. The stock market has done well. And those people decided to just exit the labor force. For someone who's living on a fixed income or needs a a cash flow from their portfolio, they can actually invest in fixed income, right? And Mm -hmm. get cash flow from the portfolio where last decade, you're earning essentially zero. And if on top of put inflation on it, you, your net purchasing power might be decreasing depending on where you're allocated. So it gives investors an opportunity to actually like go out, make investments in fixed income Mm -hmm. and then get paid. So it, it was all the incentives to essentially retire if you, if you could afford to. Yeah. Yeah. And now really what would draw those people back in uh, just historically recessions, market corrections do on the margin, but it's probably not going to draw all 2 million of those back. Yeah. I mean, with that, let's pivot into weakness. Our biggest weakness that we've been seeing is actually coming out of China. The expectations there were very robust. I mean, people were expecting COVID lockdowns lifting, 
China's just going to come out of the gates firing on all cylinders, and it just has not happened yet. The debt situation over there continues to flag that economy. We we know to a degree what's going on, but it's still not a completely open market, so it's hard to know exactly where those weaknesses are are coming from or what what specific real estate assets are are causing the massive problems for them. But it it's it's a concern. Yeah, and they have been trying to work on that over the last few years, right? This was years in the making for a problem, and it'll likely be years in the making of a type of solution. Uh, The recovery in China is pretty consistent with like a 5% growth rate, which is what the government is targeting. It's just when they did do the reopening of the economy from the COVID lockdowns, I believe a lot of investors thought that it was going to look a lot like the COVID reopening that we had in the United States. And it wasn't. It had Chinese characteristics to it where it was, you know, the spending, it did accelerate. Retail sales are doing pretty well, but it has mostly been on that manufacturing side. And maybe part of this is because businesses are realizing that they need to diversify their supply chains. So the almost trauma from the protracted lockdowns that affected supply chains so badly has resulted in that phenomenon of what do they call it, friend shoring or reshoring. And so the manufacturing rebound just hasn't been as aggressive as maybe what some people were hoping for. Yeah, and it, it makes you almost wonder if China was expecting it too, because mm-hmm. it, it to a degree seems as though they weren't. I mean, they're coming out with potential new stimulus to try and revigorate and get things going, but the manufacturing numbers just have not been that strong. The demand for commodities, therefore, has been weak, and that's caused some issues. We'll segue into our opportunities off of that is, I think it's been overblown. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of long-term demand plays inside of base materials, oil, etc., given what has happened over the last decade and lack of investment in those infrastructures to get commodities out of the ground and into plants and produce goods. That's one area, and I think when we talk about that, we just had an OPEC meeting this yep. past weekend. Saudi Arabia is planning to cut production. I think you have a better handle on that than I do, so I'll kind of hand it off there. Yeah, Uh, so OPEC met, uh, so they call it now OPEC Plus because they've added Russia to the mix. And they really, they didn't allow reporters into the meeting, which is kind of interesting. And so you knew something was amiss when they say, hey, no, you know, there's no reporting during it because I have a feeling that it was a very contentious meeting. The announcement came out very late. In the past, it's come out within like 30 minutes in, you know, so it's like they go in and they decide, yep, we're going to cut production, we're going to keep it steady or whatever. This must have been a hotly contested one because it came out late. They didn't allow reporters in. And Saudi Arabia decided that they were going to cut production at least for the next month by one million barrels per day. And so they are losing a lot of market share now as a result of it. And really the message that I got from it is they want to keep the market in suspense about what they're going to do. And with oil prices around where they are now, I mean, I think Saudi Arabia needs it to be slightly higher in order to kind of balance their books. But they also recognize that if the price goes too high, not only does it feed inflation, but it also is a damper on growth. And they already recognize that, you know, growth is kind of slowing in a lot of the world, that they don't want to be a contributing factor to make that snowball. So it's probably more symbolic than substantive that they decided that they were going to cut by a million barrels per day. So maybe we're going to be somewhat range bound with oil prices. 
Of course, you know, that's dangerous to say because the second I say that it's likely to be range bound, it, you know, breaks out of that range. (laughs) So either to the upside or to the downside. To your point there, I think a lot of that has come from lack of purchase in in China, actually, like Mm -hmm. natural gas. They didn't really purchase over the winter, which helped Europe essentially get through their recession or work through their recession the way they are because natural gas prices came down as much as they did over there to help alleviate the inflation problems that they have. Um, but you essentially have a big player in the market that wasn't purchasing and didn't actually come online and purchase as much as we had talked about, given the weaknesses that have kind of come out of there. So there is still, I think, longer term and underpinnings of demand there. It just hasn't come back online the way that people had had expected them to. Yeah, I think it's really about the timing of it, that the demand is likely to come back. It's just a question of when. And the Chinese government has been talking about more stimulus. Yeah, right, exactly. And I mean... With all that said, so weaknesses leading to those opportunities, now we'll bring it back to threats. I still think that there's some over-exuberance, if you'd call it, on AI a little bit. I mean, it's going to be revolutionary. Like, I think there's massive potential there. It's just you get to a point where certain companies just say the word AI and their stock takes off. And it's... Okay. I mean, that's great. Like if you can implement it and do it appropriately, that's fine. But I think there's a lot more to implementing AI Mm -hmm. and actually establishing it in your business that people are kind of looking past and saying, oh, in five, 10 years, this is going to be amazing. And not necessarily seeing maybe that five to 10 years actually stretches out a little longer. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's 10 10 to 15 instead. Yeah. It's like I've been working with artificial intelligence since the early 2000s and it it has been transformative. But I've noticed that sometimes it comes in these like almost like um, uh, like punctuation marks or something. You know, it's like, okay, so it's evolutionary and then you get this big change. It's temporarily revolutionary but then it's evolutionary again yeah it's like stepwise like it takes steps as it improves right yeah exactly and i think right now we've had a big step forward with processing power with these large language models but are we almost kind of just jumped up to the next step now and it's not a ramp yeah i know you and jason spent a ton of time last week covering it and it was like it was a great episode and i just i come back to it can be a amazing technology, amazing change to how we operate. It's just a matter of what's the price on that, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at companies in the NASDAQ 100 trading at eight, you know, eight times what the Russell 2000 is trading at, which we haven't seen those levels since the dot-com era, yeah, these companies are making more money and you could sure. work the numbers to justify it. It's still, it's that's a large deviation from where they historically trade, which is about two to three times, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just caveats with that that I think people need to be cautious when looking at AI and not just saying, oh, this company does AI. I'm going to invest in it because yeah. they're going to be a great company going forward. And then lastly, interest costs continue to flag the economy. And I think that is getting a pass right now, especially given the fact that rate cuts were priced in and now they're starting to get priced out. So any company that has debt and potentially has debt maturing. So high yield market is probably my biggest concern with that. Given the fact that you have a maturity wall coming, everyone's kind of talked about, don't worry about the maturity wall. It's out in 24, 25, 26. Well, those are getting closer every day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And these companies are going to have to finally start repricing and refinancing uh, that debt as that starts to come through. 
I think you're going to have to really do some due diligence on your credit analysis to make sure that these companies can cover cover the costs that they're going to be taking on. Yeah, and even though it looks like 2024, 26, whatever, when it comes to markets, because markets are forward-looking, the future is now. Right. <laughs> it, and it can suddenly start focusing on those what look like year-out problems. Mm-hmm. They can become today's problems when the market starts fixating on them. Yeah, and I, I think people are kind of giving them a pass, thinking they'll be able to handle the cost. But when you look at the leverage that some of these companies have and the fact that their coverage ratios on the debt that they have is what historical norm has been, and now you go and you double what their cost of debt is going to be, those those ratios all fall, start to fall apart. And when you're paying what you are on those for, from a spread standpoint over treasuries, it, it, there is some lack of justification there. So it's really understanding how those companies are going to be able to refinance that debt going forward that I think has to be analyzed and looked over thoroughly. Boils down so. to know what you own. Yep. Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. What's our headline strength? The labor market, how strong that continues to be. And we'll see if the headline strength from service sector activity continues as well. Headline weakness. Chinese economic activity has been quite weak. Headline opportunity. You know, some of this weakness can get uh, already priced into the market, a little overdone perhaps. And our headline threat. Taming some of the expectations on AI and higher debt costs for companies. Episode 54 of the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.